0: I'm Angel, passionate birth worker and podcast host of the Birth Rebel Podcast. I'm bringing you a blend of heart, soul, and a bit of controversy. Join me on my podcast where I dive fearlessly into thought-provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and postpartum. I'm unmasking the truths. I'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter. Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it. Hey everyone, so before we get into this episode, I actually want to just tell you guys that this episode is a little bit different than my other episodes, and I, if you guys want to hear more episodes like this, please let me know. Um, so I would love to try and review different news articles, videos about things in the perinatal health field, and just, you know, offer my view on it. In this episode, we're actually bringing on someone um, to review this information, with me and we're really just bringing our perspective on this topic coming from a holistic viewpoint in perinatal care. So as this episode is something that you enjoy and you want me to make more episodes like it, please let me know. You can actually go in the show notes and do a, a topic request and if there's any articles that you want me to take a look at and just come at at it from um, my own perspective from what I know I'd be happy to do that or even bring on a guest who could review it with me all right I hope you guys enjoy this episode let's dive in Hi everyone, it's Angel here on the Birth Cafe podcast. I actually have a returning guest and if you've been watching my Instagram, you have seen me drop a few hints about my returning guest and my returning guest. I would love for you to introduce yourself really quickly since people probably already know who you are. <laughs>
1: Thanks Angel. I'm Stuart Fishbein. I'm a uh, Southern. well actually I'm in Southern Utah now. I've practiced in Southern California for 40 years. I've now stopped doing clinical work on a daily basis. I'm still going to attend some, you know, case by case basis. I do mostly teaching and consulting, and writing. And people want to know our, my history. They can probably go back to our last podcast and you read my bio. And I'm not going to bore people with that. But you know, I'm lo- I'm looking forward to the topic today. It's going to be interesting to see how this works out. So take it
0: away. (laughs) Yes. There is a YouTube video by Mama Dr. Jones and Candace Owens. So if you guys don't know who either of those people are, Candace Owens is a political speaker and debater. She is very conservative and she has, is very outspoken about her ideals and ideologies. And then Dr. Mama Jones is a PGYN. She's very popular on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok as well. And she likes to do a lot of reviews on, you know, tick medical advice, dangers of certain things, and things like that. This video came out and September 30th, 2022. And this video is... Candace Owens' birth story is dangerous medical, medical and misinformation. And this video is really just critiquing some concerns that Candace Owens had about GBS and how she was treated in the hospital and some fresh frustrations that she had with the hospital and some of it very, very valid. However. Dr. Mama Jones is highly critical of some of the information she shared. So to get us started, I actually wanted to share a clip of this so that you guys can understand where we're coming from, but don't worry, I will also link this in our description below. So without further ado,
2: let's get right into it. And I could not let some of the things that she says in this video go because they could be extremely harmful if people don't know that what she's saying isn't accurate.
3: So my story starts with, and if you're a woman listening to this, you'll know what I'm talking about, the many tests that you have to get while you are pregnant. One of them is for Group B Strep, GBS, right? They say, we're going to test you for GBS.
2: You do not have to get any test in pregnancy. We recommend a variety of tests, which are evidence-based to improve overall maternal and neonatal health. Group B strep is recommended as a screening test because we can improve outcomes, which I will talk about in a moment, by testing for that and knowing about it and being able to treat it. Now, if you're listening and you're wondering what even is GBS? I've had kids.
3: I'm from a different decade. We never had to do this test. Well, what you are told as a woman is that it's a regular colonization that. Go ahead.
1: Can we we stop it there for a second? can i comment on what she you know this would be a great place if i can just wave my hands like (laughs) yeah yeah that's perfect Uh, first she says that tests are elective and while in our model that is absolutely true with midwifery model of care tests are elective and they're based on informed consent model there is both overt and subtle coercion in the medical model to be tested for certain things because. They'll tell you, yeah, you can elect not to get this test, but if there's any problem in the hospital, your baby's going to be put in the NICU because we won't know your baby's GBS status. Or you don't have to screen diabetes, but then we're going to consume that you're diabetic and and we're going to do extra testing on you. And you can, you know, most people don't know that they can decline tests and they don't know that they can decline things that they're going to offer you if you don't do the tests. So when they say testing is elective, it's definitionally true, but Mm-hmm. There's all this sort of pressure and coercion on people to do tests that are unnecessary. Right. And I could go on and on and on about which tests are necessary and which aren't. My, one of my favorites is when they, you come to the hospital in labor and they make you go into the bathroom and pee in a cup. And it's like, why are we peeing in a cup? And somebody's going to say, well, we want to check for protein in your urine and we want to check for, for that. Yeah, well, she's not complaining of a urinary tract infection. Her blood pressure is 100 over 60. She doesn't have preeclampsia. A lot of times when you pee in the hospital, you've already. You either bleeding or you're already ruptured membranes or your analysis is useless anyway they do it because it's almost done without thinking it's just done as part of a routine plus it's a billable charge so the hospital can bill for it but you know it's it's like yeah when you go to the hospital you can refuse to pee in a cup by the way try to refuse having your blood drawn though and see if that's possible because they say, well, we can't admit you until you have your blood drawn Mm
2: -hmm.
1: we can't give you an epidural until you have your blood drawn and you know i understand that they want to check your platelet count that makes sense but why, if somebody that's coming in the hospital, doesn't want those things done, do they have to have their blood drawn to get admitted? So they're not really elective. Right. And the other thing she says, and I just want your listeners to be careful about is She says things aren't evi- there's evidence-based medicine. And I have a real problem with the term evidence-based medicine and, a, and also a problem with the term standard of care because they're arbitrary. And evidence-based medicine is only based on, is only good if it's good evidence. And a lot of the evidence that we have, including what ACOGs admits is that two thirds of their guidelines are based on opinion only and not on good evidence. And yet those guidelines are used to define standards of care and evidence-based medicine. So sometimes these terms just slip out of our mouths and I'm guilty of it too, but they don't mean what you think they mean. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Right.
0: Yeah, actually what? later on in the video, you'll see how, when you, when we're talking about like elective things, right later on in the video you actually see that the real proof of how this is very very much not elective at all and how some of these things might come with legal consequences so i'm actually interested in
3: getting your opinion on that one all right let's go takes place in every
2: woman's body but She's almost right when she says that it's a normal colonization that everyone has. That's not true. It is a normal bacteria that can be found on the skin, but not everybody has it. Current database estimates are anywhere from about 15 to 40% of people would be colonized with group B strep. They think that if you have a certain amount, I guess a certain
3: number, or this colonization is bigger than usual, they recommend that you undergo antibiotics while you are giving birth.
2: The reason that people didn't know about group B strep screening in maybe the seventies or eighties is because group B strep emerged as a leading cause of neonatal mortality in the seventies. And it took quite some time after that to identify where the infections were coming. Okay. So I'm glad you want me to pause
0: here because I had some questions.
1: about I wanted to comment on a couple of things. First of all, somewhere between 40 to 50% of women are supposedly colonized with GBS but only one to two percent of those people in other words about a half of one percent of women coming into labor w- will spread that to their baby who will get a gbs early onset disease which can be quite serious so when she throws out a number of 40 to 50 percent being colonized it's misleading because yes that's true but that's not directly related to the risk of infection which is about a half of one percent of all women coming into labor or one or one or two percent of those people colonized so i see this i saw i see this a lot i'm not i'm not by the way i want to preface everything that i say today by i listened to this video back when you asked me to several months ago and i think that uh, dr daniel Jones seems she seems genuine but she's typical of physicians who work in the medical industrial complex and she's really inside her medical box she leans heavily to alarmist language and you'll hear things like incredibly dangerous that terminology but you know I I think there's a, a hyperbole and I'll probably have some on my side. So I don't want to pick on that, on that. I just want to say that I don't think she's being snarky in any way, shape or form. I think she is telling people what she truly believes as I am now and as Candace did too. And I don't know that you have to have medical knowledge to be able to express your opinion, but you have to understand that when you express an opinion, you have, you know, that people are going to be disagreeing with you and they're going to criticize you. Right. So she's criticizing Candace. And I am looking at what she's saying and what Candace is saying and speaking of of that. Now, she says that GBS in the 1970s was the leading cause of neonatal mortality. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know that that's true. So again, she throws out a lot of things there. And I don't expect her to give references or anything like that. That's ridiculous to, to expect that in a, in a YouTube video. But I'm not sure that, that that is that is actually true. But let's let's play some more. Oh, you had some questions too.
0: Yeah. So that was actually something that I was pretty curious about is that in the 70s, it was talking about, she was saying that it was the leading cause of infant mortality. And I just, I'm like, so what happened in the 70s and 80s that that caused that to be, you know, such a, such an issue? Like, was it not an issue in the 1800s, like, or the early 1900s or, so I just didn't understand like why that would be the leading cause of infant mortality in the 70s. You
1: know, that's a really interesting question. You know, you have to kind of look back and see, was it the leading cause of mortality in the 50s and 60s? And what happened in the 70s that would change that if this is true? Right. The second thing, too, is I'm not sure she's talking about the United States or she's talking about the first world, the third world, you know, lower socioeconomic countries. I I, I don't know when she's when you make a broad statement like that. Mm -hmm. But again, she's being sincere. So let's let's go on.
2: Okay from, So yeah, before we had identified that it was a problem and why, screening for it and treating it wasn't a thing. That makes sense. A Neonatal GBS at the time that it was identified had a case fatality rate, meaning of all the babies that were diagnosed with this, 50% or more would die. That is a massive number and it's still incredibly dangerous today. Now here's the first thing that you should know
3: and they will tell you this, the doctors will back this up. You can test positive for GBS on a Thursday at 2. PM, come back and take that test at a Thursday at 6. PM, and you won't have, you can test negative. It could go away within a couple of hours and you might test differently.
2: Not quite true. Tests are relatively predictive of colonization status for around five weeks. So if you look at the actual data, there's only about a 2% chance of somebody who tests positive at 36 weeks converting to negative by the time of delivery. But if
3: you test positive even once. They will, they're not going to retest you and they're going to recommend that you go on an antibiotic course while you are giving birth.
2: That's only once in the last six weeks or in a sterile urine sample. Not only once ever because that amount of time is where the risk is signified. But a urine sample is different because it's a colonization in a sterile body site.
3: I don't like antibiotics in general and I decided to look up exactly what this GBS was, what the statistics surrounding it were. Is this actually going to be harmful to my baby
2: as she's exiting the womb? Whether it's a risk to your baby is completely up to chance. Of course, everyone who tests positive does not have a baby that ends up with neonatal GBS. That's not how this works. The same way that arriving home after a bunch of errands around town with a kid in your backseat that's unbuckled but fine isn't evidence that they don't need a seatbelt. Your kid being fine, even though they didn't have this risk reduction observation period or the treatment doesn't mean that it wasn't needed it means statistics were on your side in that incident it's about 50 50 whether the neonate will also end up being colonized and all right that's okay so
1: first of all when she comes when she says a 50 percent mortality rate back in the 70s i i just think that that is i don't know where she's getting that from that's absolutely not something that i would ever remember reading or seeing a matter of fact, I have an abstract from ACOG in front of me here that was written recently and they say that vertical transmission usually occurs during labor after after eruption membranes. In the absence of intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis, one to two percent of those newborns will develop GBS early onset disease. Mm. So one to two percent of the 50 percent who are colonized who don't get antibiotics will get early onset GBS disease. Of those that get early onset GBS disease, not all those are going to die. Some will. Right. right. So when she says when she says something like fifty percent were dying in the seventies, I don't know what that has to do. But that has nothing to do with what Candace Owens is saying in twenty twenty
0: two. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: So again, I think it's a bit of a hyperbole to make her point, which we all do. Right. Again, I I, I recognize the fact that we all have a, a bias and we're going to try to project our bias onto the people we're talking to. But you can't use numbers that are crazy like that. And I will say that I, I, when I listened to this podcast, at no time did she address the issue of risks of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. They just assume that antibiotics are the default position. And that by giving antibiotics, you're preventing the likelihood of GBS in the newborn. But what are we doing long-term to that baby's microbiome? And that is something that's never addressed. And I'm not gonna address it here either, Other than for your listeners to just take that into consideration especially when a baby is born you know without a whole lot of exposure to the mother's vaginal flora Mm -hmm. or the mother's been given antibiotics for eight hours or 20 hours before she gives birth and the baby comes through a a relatively sterilized vaginal environment what does that do to the baby long term and the baby having some antibiotics in its own system for a day or two until it's gone and metabolized out what does that do to the baby's initial colonization, which is so important of its guts and its respiratory system.
0: I'm an infant microbiome teacher. So there's a, uh, I have a few podcast episodes and I'll list those where we talk about the impact of birth on the baby's microbiome and antibiotics is definitely a, a concern and definitely one of those understudy concerns. Not to mention that we already have an overuse of antibiotics in general. And more research is coming out, just, you know, the impact of antibiotics just during pregnancy, which is really interesting as well. So, yeah, we got to give all the, all of the, all the facts, right?
1: Yeah, listen, by the way, I'm just reading what you have up on the screen right now, and that's exactly what I just read. Okay. So, but it, the, yeah. the second part isn't, but the part that you've got highlighted there, let's see what she says about that.
2: Okay obviously all of those don't get disastrously ill but 50 50 rate of colonization for a bacteria that causes terrible neonatal outcomes if it becomes invasive is a pretty high number and we also know that implementing testing and screening has drastically reduced this there is indefinite correlation with a positive test and the risk to your baby that is not meant to say everybody who tests positive will have a sick baby that's just not how how viruses and bacteria work. Of
3: course, what I found was that dark hole
2: of statistics that basically told me 0% of babies are harmed by this. Group B is thought to be the cause of almost 60,000 infant deaths, 37,000 childhood onset lifelong disabilities and up to 50,000 stillbirths every single year. This is nowhere near 0% of babies being harmed. Neonates of black mothers are at an increased risk of invasive GBS as well thanks to systemic and over racism. If you're be-
1: All right. That's a great story, I love that where you froze that. No, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if I understood Candace right there when she says it's essentially zero because it isn't. Right. And and, and Dr. Jones is right there, that there is, there is risk. There's risk in every decision that we make in life, there's risk. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is the medical model overplaying the risk or are they legitimate and even if they are legitimate or overplaying the risk ultimately decision to get antibiotics belongs to the well-informed woman right because and and when you counsel somebody about giving antibiotics for gps you must tell them what the risks of antibiotics are and that's never well i never i hate saying never but it's almost never included in the consent process Mm -hmm. it's like when i uh, when i i'm very familiar with breach delivery and when i hear doctors tell women that breech delivery is really dangerous, and you need to have a cesarean section for it. I always ask them, did the doctor ever ask tell you the risks of cesarean? Mm-hmm. Did the doctor ever ask you if you want more children? Right. Because if you have a cesarean section and you want more children, you're putting all your future children at risk by having a cesarean section for that breech baby. Mm-hmm. But those things are never not discussed. And even in ACOG's guidelines for breech, where they support vaginal breech delivery in the hospital with skilled practitioner, they say that you must inform the woman that there's a slight increase of morbidity to a breech baby, but they don't say anything about the risks of cesarean section to that baby or any future babies. So, you know, the the really interesting thing would be for somebody like Dr. Jones and somebody like me to sit on a stage with a a moderator and have a a conversation in front of 200, 300 people in an auditorium, because, you know, otherwise it's tit for tat. And then, you know, it's kind of like what texting is, or or, or or what Twitter is, is people going back and forth, and you never actually can have a conversation where she could agree with me on some things, and I would concede, and she, I could agree with her on some things, and, and I would concede. I think I might have said that wrong, but yeah. So this format isn't isn't great. I just want your listeners to understand that that you know, not being wrong is not the same as not as being
2: right. Okay, go ahead.
0: Also, I. Some of the things that I actually kind of wanted to also bring up, and I'll kind of jump ahead a little bit, just mostly what happened postpartum, is when we do have the informed, you know, we get we get informed on, you know, the risk of everything, of all the procedures, of all the medication that they're going to use during the procedure, is the pushback from healthcare and the consequences of refusing some of those things. So, I'm actually going to skip to parts where she's actually talking about after she had her baby, she decided at some point she didn't want the antibiotics and they were not going to let her take her baby home because she refused the antibiotics. So um, before you
1: do that, before you yeah. do that, can I just make one last comment on the GBS stuff? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I know it's your show. You know, in, later on in this, in the debate coming up next, she she cites a Lancet article from April of 22. Uh, First of all, I just want to make a comment about Lancet. Lancet's lost its reputation. I'm not saying that has anything to do with this article, but you've got to be really careful when you read scientific literature now because scientific literature is often skewed toward whoever's paying for it, Mm -hmm. whoever's paying to support the journal, whoever advertises it, which is almost always Big Pharma. Big Pharma makes antibiotics. It's really important for people to take their medication. That's something that we're all learning about right now, but also this particular article is a very difficult article to interpret. There's lots of estimations and assumptions in it. There's data gaps and you can't really tell sometimes who was treated, who wasn't treated, there are other variables and and it's not, it's not, it's worldwide. So it's not directly related to the United States and it's mostly in poorer countries and there's no control groups. There's no, you know, it's an observational study. So uh, science is just, it's very, very hard for people to interpret these days because it's hard to trust that we've, you know, I I guess it's probably been hard to trust for a really long time. It's only come to the forefront now that science is corrupted. And when people use a paper to promote their point, a lot of times they're skewing their numbers, sort of the way that this, this doctor is accusing Candace of doing. So we're all guilty of our confirmation bias, and I've said that before, and I want to just reiterate the fact that just because there's a paper or something that says this doesn't necessarily mean it's a good paper or that it's the only paper, and there might be papers out there that say the opposite. Right. Got to use your gut. Mm -hmm. People, this is something we've got to use, start using our sixth sense and our gut, and if something doesn't seem right, even though there's a paper or a science behind it, it's probably not right. Right yeah okay. okay well you can
0: you can also find pretty much any research article to defer, confirm or deny anything right like <laughs> yeah.
1: the other thing that yeah. she does too and again most doctors do this too because they have a point and i try to be very careful about doing it is she always talks relative risk she uses she she uses if you go on through the rest of this GBS stuff she goes on and talks about how something is much more likely or three times greater risk or there's an increased chance mm-hmm but that doesn't really mean anything if you don't know what the denominator is of the, of the risk itself, if you don't know right. what the actual risk is. An example would be if something happens one in a million times, and, it's, and there's something that this is a three times greater risk. Well, that sounds horrible, but it's still only one in 333,000, which is essentially zero, which may be where Candace is coming with her zero number. I don't know, but you know, small risks are small risks and ultimately risk is defined by each person differently. And it's one of the basic tenets of medical ethics that given the same information, it's not reasonable to assume all people will come to the same decision.
0: Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And actually, what are your thoughts on some of the methods that we use, you know, to test for GBS? You know, we use the universal approach and, you know, places like the UK use the risk factor approach. So I know there's been a lot of debate on which one is better. ACOG has come out and said universal approach is the better option, but I've seen the Cochrane reviews saying that the studies that they did for the universal to come to those conclusions that the universal approach was better is not, you know, it wasn't a really good research article in the first place. Yeah. The
1: universal approach is, is having all pregnant women in the last few weeks of their pregnancy swab their, and then their perianal area just inside the anus too. That's what they're supposed to do. That's how it's defined lower vagina near the introitus, and then from the rectum through the anal sphincter that is the western medicine now now again that's the united states goes that way europe especially england treats only on risk factors in other words if you have premature rupture of membranes if you spike a fever in labor if your baby has a funky heart rate tracing you know there's other other risk factors i'm leaving out because i'm not coming to mind right now then they treat you when you're in labor they give you antibiotics but otherwise they don't and their outcomes don't seem to be drastically worse. They're not certainly, what's the term that she likes to use? Incredibly dangerous. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be incredibly dangerous to do it that way. Now, maybe England doesn't do universal cultures because England's a socialized healthcare system and they're trying to avoid costs. Or maybe American does cultures because we are a for-profit system. And, you know, every time you do a culture, some lab makes money on it. Every time you give antibiotics to anybody who's positive, some pharmaceutical company makes money on that. hospital makes money there's a billable charge for that so all these things have to come into play but if 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 the countries that aren't doing universal screening are getting results that aren't significantly different from ours then maybe we should take a step back and take a deep breath and look at that
0: yeah i 100 agree you know and i'm kind of glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that i was thinking i'm like okay so every time we do these cultures you know obviously someone is getting billed for it. We get billed for it every single time, especially if we do the universal approach. So that does make a lot of sense. Of course, sometimes you just really do have to follow the money for sure. All right. So, okay, let's skip ahead and let's talk about Candace's experience postpartum after she refused the GBS and what happened with that
3: that i have signed you out so when you are ready you can leave and that was all i needed to hear we jumped up and we started packing up our bags the pediatrician is the only person left to sign us out and i will never forget her name clearly she did not make this a priority it was about another hour and she still had not come to our room you're clearly dragging your feet for whatever reason this is
2: exactly what i meant with the poor communication it is likely that this pediatrician who is a hospitalist has very sick potentially life-threatening ill premature babies under her care and I think that had Candace known that and not from her side she doesn't see what's going on but if she had a little more communication from the team and said you know I promise she's trying to get there as soon as possible she's not ignoring you this is not punishment because you're asking to be discharged she's just taking care of some really sick babies right now and I promise she'll be here as soon as she possibly can like that kind of communication would go a long way in this situation where you have a very frustrated patient so I think that this is a really good example of where we devolve from Candace's sharing things that's bad information to Candace's sharing really important part of her story. Yeah, thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I, I like the fact that she, if, you, if people listen to this whole thing, she supports Candace's complaints about the interruptions and the horrible communication. Mm-hmm. But this thing about the pediatrician and discharging it, I, I want to dig a deeper dive into that. Prior to the 80s, Routine healthy babies born in a hospital were not seen by pediatricians, they were taken care of by nurses. You've all seen the pictures of babies and little plastic buckets lined up behind a glass window and the dad's tapping on the window, "Where's my baby, there's my baby, not realizing how stupid that was, all right, but only when a baby was felt to be in trouble by the nursing staff would a pediatrician be called. Then what happened, and again, this is not just speculation, it's not, I can't, there's no. Nothing in writing that says this, but I, this is from my experience. In the eighties, maybe the late seventies, early eighties, pediatric departments began to realize this was when people still got paid fee for service. They began to realize that that seeing a baby in the in the nursery and for not seeing a baby in the nursery was uncaptured revenue. And because when a bi- when a pediatrician got called in to see a baby, they could make about well, three hundred bucks or I don't know what they you know just some imaginary amount of money for not a a lot of work. So what pediatric departments around the country began to do was they began to make policies in their hospitals and pass them through the medical executive committee in the, in the hospital to have a policy that says every baby born needs to be seen by a pediatrician, right? So that was great for about 10 years. Pediatricians made a lot of money because they came in and they did a newborn exam on a baby and. You know the nurses had already done them and they did a newborn exam and the baby they billed out for that they got paid for that. it was great. But then what happened was managed care came in and managed care said, we're not going to pay for that, but we're going to pay like thirty bucks for that. So then a woman gets you know delivers at four in the afternoon and she want to goes home at ten o'clock at night, but the hospital says you can't go home until a pediatrician comes because we have a policy that the pediatrician needs to discharge your baby. Well, maybe for three hundred dollars a pediatrician might come in at ten o'clock at night, but For $30, there's no way that pediatrician is going to come in at 10 o'clock at night. And so you end up with the idea that a baby can't be discharged until a pediatrician sees them. And this policy came back to bite them in the ass because they initially put it in because there was uncaptured revenue. And then when the revenue went away, the policy didn't go away. So now they're stuck with a policy that makes every newborn baby be seen by a pediatrician. Why does every newborn baby need to be seen by a pediatrician? No home birth baby is seen by a pediatrician in the first few days the midwives take care of them because midwives are trained in mother-baby sort of thing. So it's, it's a cultural thing that we think that it's important to do that only because it's been, we've been doing that for the last 30 years. So there's absolutely no sense. So Candace's dilemma of not being able to be discharged until the pediatrician saw the baby is mostly because of a policy that's archaic that was put in place for monetary reasons, not for safety reasons. Right. But safety will always be used as a canard, as, an ar- as the false flag argument for why we need to do something. But that something will almost always have a billable revenue generating charge to it
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's how our system works
0: yeah
1: absolutely. okay i just wanted to say that because it's important that people understand that yeah the pediatrician has to. you know candace had to wait all this time to see a pediatrician why yep the baby's been sitting on, on her chest in her, with her for a day and a half or whatever it's been or two days baby's been fine mm-hmm. the hospital has a policy the fact that the policy makes no sense <sighs> and that individual nurses can't use their judgment and decide when a baby might need to be seen by a pediatrician. It's typical of how administrative people put everything on an algorithm and everybody has to be on an algorithm and you can't get off the algorithm. And if you try to get off the algorithm, then you're a troublemaking patient or you're you're a nurse that's going to get reprimanded on Monday morning by your supervisor because you let somebody go home without following policy. Right. Because you used nope. your in, independent decision-making.
0: <laughs> yes. So, like, okay, so we know that rights of mom trumps policy. So whatever the mom decides that she wants to refuse or not refuse, you, I, ideally in the most perfect world, you know, her, whatever she wants, she should be able to do. However, is it different with babies? Like, does policy override the parents' and the baby's rights?
1: No. Period mic drop no it doesn't however (laughs) however hospitals will often use the risk of social services or child protective services as a threat and ACOG is very very explicit about the fact that the use of coercion including the courts or legal aspects or child protective services they even mention child protective services is never acceptable as a method to get people to do what you want them to do wow but that doesn't matter hospitals violate medical ethics and what's know, they'll quote ACOG policies or the American Academy of Pediatric Policies when it suits their model. Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't suit their model, they'll ignore them. Mm -hmm. They're cherry picking which ones they're going to follow and which ones they aren't going to follow. That is a coping mechanism for cognitive dissonance. Right. So there's a lot of that that's going on in in the hospital world. And again, pretty much you can trace everything in the hospital world to financial aspect of it. Mm because the hospital is does not have their employees or their patients best interest at heart and they shouldn't the hospital's base best interest is to keep itself afloat and how does it keep itself afloat by finding ways to, rege- to generate revenue so the mission of the hospital administrator or the chief financial officer of the hospital is not the same as the, the, as the medical professionals working there the doctors and nurses want to do the right thing but they're stuck in a system that's telling them they can't do the right thing. And then they end up having to face the irate patient or try to justify some ridiculous policy. They know it's stupid, but that's where their bread is buttered. So that's where they have to go.
0: Right, okay. yeah. Yeah, That it hits so close to home because we've had, we've had a very well-loved OBGYN who, I wouldn't say break hospital policy, but definitely pushed the boundaries and he's no longer there and- yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Me too. Uh,
0: yeah, it to me. Yeah, it's been so hard for and the the community. The community here is in uproar because of it, and now moms are having to scramble to find other healthcare providers. But you know, when a doctor does listen to the patients, because that's what he, you know, well known for, and some doctors have called him controversial for doing that. But but then when they when they do listen to their patients and are in the bet you know, do things in the best interest of their parents, their patients and autonomy and all the things, they have to face these consequences. And you're right, they do. I've met so many nurses who want to do the right thing. You know, they they have these patients that, you know, want this or want that, and they feel like their hands are tied because they, the, the staff have to follow policy. The patients don't have to po- follow policy, but they do. <laughs> So it's just, it is, it's just kind of crazy yeah,
1: it's how it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's violating for them. I mean, yeah. the, the nurses, they, the nurses and doctors at hospitals, they know what medical ethics is. They have an ethical obligation to do certain things, but the hospital's rules put them in, in they're in direct conflict sometimes with your professional ethics, your Hippocratic Oath, your other things that, that you swear to. And that's a real problem when you ended up having, that we're really getting off topic now sorry doctor show but, but that's a real problem when you have doctors as employees of the hospital up until you know the 80s doctors were independent contractors with hospitals they got privileges and they brought people there but they weren't paid by the hospital and with managed care coming in and HMOs coming in and the corporatization of medicine you are seeing an increasing increasing number of physicians in the, that are, that are employees now. And it used to be about 70% of doctors 50 years ago were private sector. Now it's about 20% and it's going to keep diminishing because the pressures on the private sector are just, they can't keep up with all the costs and other things that are going on. And once a doctor becomes his employee, an employee, his fiduciary duty is compromised right, and conflicted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go on. Yeah.
0: And also side note for us doulas. That is actually the problem with, you know, do those working in the hospital. <laughs> working for the hospital. But mm-hmm. I digress, that'll have to be, yeah, working for the hospital. That'll have to be like a whole other topic, but all right, let's go, let's go on.
2: That should be a signal to us that as healthcare professionals that we need to make sure that we are compassionately and autonomously communicating with our patients.
3: Two minutes later, Dr. Wilson arrives and she comes in. This is the first time she has seen me. This is the first time she has seen my daughter she goes over and does the obligatory check of the vitals picks my daughter up looks at her and says oh, you know congratulations she looks very healthy i say great she said but but I am not going to sign you out because we think that you should wait 20 hours because you declined the antibiotic. It's
2: not because you declined antibiotics. It's because you tested positive for GBS and that wasn't treated. The reason for not having been treated is irrelevant. You could decline them. You could not be able to get them. You could be allergic and we aren't able to give them to you. Whatever the reason, the observation timeframe is recommended as a safeguard to catch any early signs or symptoms of GBS.
1: Okay, so we're back to the GPS thing again. Yeah, yeah, the hospital again, this is a policy put in place that says the hospital has to watch the baby for 48 hours. So I guess that she was still some hours short of her 48 hour window. Let me say something about the the number 48 hours or 24 hours of ruptured membrane or age 35 or 42 weeks. This is is a, a Dr. Stu, I don't know what I want to call it, tenant. But when something ends in a perfectly even number, it's bullshit. Okay. It's made up because nature doesn't work that way. So 48 hours is an arbitrary number that was, we brought from a series of a bunch of different studies and they just came up with a guideline. All right. But I would ask the question, how many babies that look perfect at 32 hours are going to suddenly go bad afterwards? And I get, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe Dr. Jones does, maybe we, neither one of us does. I don't know. But here's the ultimate question. When babies are born at home, or babies are born in other countries where they're sent home earlier, like a lot of times we used to send people home irregardless of GBS status in 24 hours because the insurance companies were gonna pay for more than one day. Suddenly they're paying for two days now, which is exactly what Candace talks about, is that the 48 hours is the maximum limit that the insurance companies will pay for a spontaneous vaginal delivery. But why can't the parents watch their own baby? They're not qualified. I mean, it's right out of the Monty Python sketch. Right. Doctor, the baby's coming. What do I do? John Cleese says, nothing, dear. You're not qualified. Right. Why are the, why are the parents not qualified to watch their own baby? Right. Tell the baby, the baby is not sucking well. The baby's lethargic. The baby's color isn't bad. Just let us know. Right. Right. And, and, and why not educate the parents to do that? Because theoretically you can get Late onset GBS disease, which can come, you know, a week or ten days out, farther out, and they're not in the hospital for that. So again, this is a policy that's put into place by administrative people, not necessarily people who are actually doing the work that everyone has to follow. But it doesn't make sense because it's algorithmic, and that is not how human beings are. Not everybody falls in the same curve, and some people maybe you need to watch them because they're not. You you get a sense that the parents are not competent. But this would not be the case with Candace Owens and her husband, right? right. So again, this this is almost, it's almost robotic medicine. Mm-hmm. It's why do you need a, a a physician if everything is going to be done the same way? Okay, I, that's a, that's a little hyperbole. I mean, you can't, I mean, maybe someday bots will be doing this. I don't know, but honestly, my, my, my th- point is, is that yeah. the 48 hour thing is our, right. it's what, it's what, it's what the guidelines of the, of the American Academy of Pediatrics are. But it's, it's made up, mm-hmm. right? Because bacteria don't work that way.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I okay. actually think Candice might even bring that up about, like, what's the difference between 48 and 49 hours or 20 and twenty. Oh, well, she like, does? I don't,
1: I don't remember that.
0: I think so, yeah. And yeah, she, you're. I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, And that's not how it works. So
1: and, and you know, on, we- I think early onset GBS is defined as something between 0 and 6 days.
0: Yeah. But usually I think what I feel like I read too, that usually you'll see it within maybe an hour after birth or at least within 12, right?
1: I don't know that. I don't know. Again, I'm not a pediatric expert. I don't want to pretend to be, I am an obstetrical expert. I I would just, I would just say that, that parents can watch their own children. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it is our, it is funny that they picked exactly as Candace emphasizes, they pick exactly how long it is that you can, that a hospital can get paid for a, a mother to stay. Mm-hmm. Which is two days.
2: All
3: right, go ahead. All right, she said. Well, I-, I don't do that. She said. I I once watched a baby die, watched a baby die, because their parents didn't wait forty eight
2: hours. I thought the more I watch this back as I'm editing, the more I think that this part particularly indicates a really bad way of handling the situation on the part of the doctor that she's discussing right now this is never an appropriate way to explain (laughs) a risk that you're concerned about to your patient although i too have had a patient who lost a baby due to invasive group b strep disease i don't think that this especially in an already tense situation is ever an effective or appropriate communication tactic that's i don't like that
3: this is hilarious exactly 48 hours is what you want to take this to exactly 40 hours if you were genuinely concerned that there was going to be any harm to this child how did you arrive at 48 hours exactly when you- there's just
2: really bad communication about why they're recommending things and what's going on and it leaves room for interpretation of the requests or the recommendations as malice instead of giving the flat blanket reason, we recommend the 48 hour observation because in the studies, we know that that's where early onset symptoms typically happen. And if we can intervene in those first 48 hours, we can make a huge difference in outcomes. So could it be that insurance covers the hospital stay for exactly
3: 48 hours, which means hospital profits. If you can keep every single couple that gives birth in that hospital for 48 hours, you are guaranteeing
2: yourself a certain amount of money. That is not how it works. Your pediatrician, who is very likely to be an hourly paid hospitalist who is employed by the hospital at an hourly rate that has nothing to do with what you do or how long you stay in the hospital, is not scheming against you and your insurance to get as much money as possible. It is in our best interest to get people out of the hospital as soon as possible because that decreases our workload and opens up beds for other patients who need them.
1: Yeah, I agree with what you just said about the. the, the the doctors and nurses they want to clear people out right but that's not what Candace was talking about Candace wasn't talking about the doctor keeping her for 40 hours
3: mm-hmm.
1: the, the talk, what I think that Candace was talking about was that the hospital has a policy in place and the doctor who she who Dr. Jones admits probably is just a hospitalist means that the hospital pays her salary
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay is not going to buck the policy so in this case I think Candace is right and Dr. Jones is right they're just they're, they're sort of arguing different points because you're, you're right. I mean, as, as a clinician, you just you just want, you want to move them in and move them out. That's mm-hmm. what you'd like to do. You want, you, you want less work, you want less bills. But also, I would have to say that, that most, most physicians, pediatricians, obstetricians that I know of in the medical model or the medical industrial complex, you know, they're ba- they're based from the beginning of their residency programs, even the medical school in a fear-based model of uh, worst case scenario. We have to prevent worst case scenario. And by doing, preventing worst case scenario, we may be actually causing more trouble than we want. The medical model, model, doesn't like uncertainty. They don't trust birth, they don't trust us and they don't like uncertainty. So they try to control everything. The midwifery model looks at, you know, they, they trust birth. So they they accept that there's a certain amount of things they can control. But when trying to control everything, you sometimes really mess things up. I mean, there's a scene in in a movie that I love called Team America World Police. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's uh, made by the guys that do South Park. It's with puppets or marionettes. And there's a scene where the terrorists are in Paris and they're going to set off a bomb to destroy Paris. And the Team America World Police comes in and they attack the terrorists and they destroy the terrorists. And they were cheering, yeah, we got the terrorists, we got the terrorists. But in the process of destroying the terrorists, they, they blew up Paris. So <laughs> they destroyed, <laughs> they did exactly what the terrorists were going to do, but they did it in the name of goodness instead of, and so you know, yeah. there is, there's a parallel here. That yeah. you may be trying to do something good, but in the process of what you think is good, you're actually not doing good. That's, you know, it's called stage two thinking. It's not only does something feel good to do it, but you have to ask yourself, does it actually do good? Right. And not you know not everything is about preventing any possible thing that could go wrong if that were the case then nothing would ever go wrong in a hospital and i would have to. no surprise to anybody listening that that's not true things go wrong in the hospital all too frequently okay
0: yeah that was awesome i have not seen that movie although although i feel like the marvel movies especially the second half actually started to bring that to light right
1: where well this is this is perfectly done for that purpose i mean yeah because the Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the guys that created South Park, are, they, they just mock everything. And it, it, yeah. it's, they're great. I love them.
2: I'm going to have okay. to watch <laughs> Okay. All right. In what is almost exclusively at this point, an understaffed and overworked hospital ward. But again, what I'm hearing from you is that healthcare should be something free where people don't end up with massive bills. And if that's what you're saying, yes, I absolutely agree with you. We can agree on two things. Number one, you shouldn't be interrupted as many times as you've mentioned in this video while you're trying to rest after having a baby. And number two, universal health care. Do you really want me to believe that you witnessed an infant that died,
3: right? Even though the chances of that happening are quite literally, virtually 0%. You witnessed it happen because they decided... No, not quite literally or virtually 0%. By the way, when you say you watched an infant died, what do you mean? You watched them die? You just you 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 just watched an infant die?
2: I'm going to respond to this here and explain what doctors and nurses mean when they say things like this. But I do want to make it clear that it was not in any way appropriate for that doctor to say that to her in this situation. That's again, this is not. You can't say things like that to patients. That's not okay. Once you
1: yeah, stop uh, for just a second. Stop for yeah. a second. That you know, she's absolutely right there. Candace mm-hmm. is wrong. And when doctors say things like, I watched the baby die, we're not being literal. And that's what I think she's going to say in the the next thing. The problem is, is that this goes on all the time. Right. Using the worst case scenario to coerce somebody to do something. I mean, how often is it that, you know, if we don't do a section right now, your baby could die. Right. Or, you know, I mean, the the dead baby card is something that gets played way, way too often. And in this case, it's, it's sort of being used as a, you know, not a dead fetus, but a dead baby and, card. Right. And they're using it and that's, that's absolutely wrong. So Dr. Jones and I are 100%
0: <laughs> Yeah. I feel like that. this is a perfect example of just, like she said, poor communication between the staff. And I mean, a lot of people go through this in the hospital, unfortunately. Oh. Not... Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And she also said something about the hospital might be short staffed or something like that. Uh huh. That's something that's not the patient's problem. Right. That's the medical. That's the hospital systems problem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and for all I know, that had to be their short staff because they fired people who wouldn't take the COVID vaccine. I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other topic too. But the the idea that a hospital is short staff, that's a problem with the you know, the whole system. But that that's not something that should affect the individual person that's there.
0: Right, right. You know,
1: you sometimes you're a captive there. If you go to a restaurant and the service is horrible and the and they don't say anything to you you're not going back but if the manager comes up to you and says geez i'm really sorry it's taking so long for your entree you know our cook called in sick today or a little bit short stuff. that's really nice and you talk to somebody in a nice way and i think that what dr jones would agree is if this could have all been diffused if people would have just talked to candace in right. a respectful nice way and and just listen and say we're, you're human i'm human i understand you're stressed. you're tired we are too we're doing our we're going to do our best to get this Get you out of here as fast as possible. That's mm-hmm. just not what they, they did. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I commend again, Dr. Jones. Dr. Dr. Jones is so funny. It's like from Indiana Jones. Dr. Jones. I, think, <laughs> I can I commend her for for when she does agree with Candace, she she's very open and says it. So that yeah, that's why I think she's very sincere. I think that she and I would probably have more in common than than not. Yes. Even though we come from, I mean, I came from her world. I mean, I looked, I practiced in her world for a long time. Mm-hmm. and but i even now i think that we would have a lot in common yeah
3: all right all right cool all right this is what i am talking about when i say there is hospital corruption the baby is here test the baby why don't you test me i've given birth 24 hours so you could test me and see if i was even positive so
0: context here so candace requested that they test the baby for uh gbs infection and pediatrician told her no and that they either can't are or, or that is just not something that they do. And so she is really frustrated because she really wants to go home and they're, you know, still not letting her take her baby home. And so that she's requesting that she get also tested to see if she still has B-
3: GBS as well as her baby.
1: Yeah. Let her go, go ahead.
2: Finish They refuse. It's just not protocol. We don't do that. It's not not protocol. It's unhelpful to the diagnosis. Maybe this was not relayed to you in an appropriate fashion, and this discussion perhaps could have been undertaken better. I absolutely will concede to that, but it's not not protocol. It's not helpful. I understand why it would seem like this is an option that we could do, but the only way to diagnose GBS that is a neonatal onset and threatening is when that gets to a high enough point in the blood or cerebrospinal spinal fluid that it causes sepsis or meningitis. And when that happens, then you can do a blood test and you can find it, which is why I said earlier that there's an easy test, but you can't do that before they're sick. You can watch for early signs and symptoms so that you intervene as soon as possible. It's not as simple as just doing a quick swab. Now, I also am confused because earlier she said that there was no way to test for this in general and now she's very angry that they didn't test for it at that point i'm not following her line of thinking here at any point they could test you right as you're running in to give labor
3: for gbs to see if you're still positive go
1: ahead i follow her line of thinking uh, and it's very clear to me she didn't want the test done but now that they're using the fact that she didn't do the test against her um Mm -hmm. and she just wants to get out of the hospital she's going to say well yeah, you can do the test on me now because you, you're not giving me antibiotics anyway. Right. Uh, it's not about antibiotics. It's about me getting out of the hospital. So there is a big difference between before and after. There is a rapid test. It's not great, really reliable. It has a one to two hour turnaround time. But it's there's a 7 to 10% false negative rate with that test. And you can't test for antibiotics and sensitivities to that either. But there is a rapid test. I, again, I agree, I agree with it all clinically. I'm not sure that if the baby's culture, if the baby's colonized, but the colonization isn't big enough. I'm not sure. Again, I I don't claim to be a pediatric expert or a micro, a microbiologist. So I, I can't comment on that, but there is a rapid test. Could they have swab Candace again at that point, if she volunteered to have herself swabbed and if she tested negative, then couldn't that be used? Theoretically, that makes sense to me, what Candace is saying. Mm yeah i don't know what i don't know dr is reasoning here maybe she's maybe
3: she'll say more go ahead okay nope 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 we won't do it we won't test you or the baby but we will keep you for an extra 20 hours of monitoring monitoring so that we can guarantee ourselves profit it's absolutely despicable
2: no it's not why that's just not how this works medicine isn't magic it is science it takes time and there are specific ways that things have to be undertaken for accurate diagnosis what we're trying to avoid is sending you home and those early signs that can be recognized by a trained eye going unrecognized until there is so much damage that the baby is brought in severely ill and there's nothing that we can do to help them. That is why the 48 hour waiting period is recommended. And I'm sorry that there's no easy test for that. I can guarantee you, if there were, we would be doing that. It just doesn't exist. And I looked at her and I said, I don't yeah i find that really interesting which part just that she
0: had mentioned like you have to have a trained eye to recognize the
1: symptoms (laughs) Yeah. okay well uh, explain to me what a trained eye means if the trained eyes aren't on the on the baby right the baby's in the mom's room the nurses are popping in every couple hours or something like that it's not like they're keeping a trained eye on their baby and they just tell the mother as i said before you know, if the baby's not latching well, if the baby looks a little bit lethargic, if the baby's breathing is funny. If so, you know, you can parents are look at when you have a newborn baby, mm-hmm. you're staring at that baby. That's the way, okay. You can't take, you know, if you're if unless you're a sociopath, you can't take your eyes off a newborn baby.
0: Yeah. They're yeah. So amazing
1: they're just amazing to look at. I mean, I yeah. I and you and I have a good fortune of in the, being in this person I get to see a, you know, for all these years I've got to see birth and newborn babies one of the Greatest things that can happen, you know. The idea that you, that only trained personnel can do this is a, is again, it's a very typical thing that that people in the medicalized world feel like that that that's something. You know, I I listen to her talk like that, and I, I I don't know that she believes like that. I don't. I believe that if she she's a very competent person. That if she were an accountant or a tax attorney, that she would be quite competent at being able to be told what to look for in a baby and then be able to do it. Right. Right, I'll
0: look at that. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, parents notice all kinds of things. They, they will, they bring their babies in for rashes and goops in their eye and everything. So I, I feel like this is just an example of not really trusting the parents to do the right thing.
1: it's one size fits all, because some yeah. parents probably you can't trust. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you have to, you have to do something that includes all, because you can't individualize your care in that model. Right. hmm she said, that's just not the way it's done. She says, mm-hmm. right? That's what just Dr. Jones just said that it's like, well, why not? Mm-hmm. Because, because it's the, the long habit of thinking something, wait, the long habit of thinking something right oh, the long habit of thinking something that's something wrong is right, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is the superficial appearance of being right. And therefore, you know, people don't question it. Right. I mean, the, in, in our profession, a great example is all newborn babies for a for hundred years went from the mother's vagina to the warmer, Oof,
2: okay.
1: you know? and nobody, and, and, and when we started saying we need to do skin to skin, initially there was panic in the nurses, nursing staff. It they didn't still know what is. to do, <laughs> so they, they didn't did. know what to do because they have to check the baby out. Look, look yeah. check the baby, the mother, put the baby on the mother's chest and the baby will likely not need any checking, but you can certainly check the baby on the mother's chest. Yes. But it's a long habit of not, oh, then I said it wrong. I'm going to correct myself. The long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And right. in this case saying that, th- you know, th- this is the way we do it. This is the way it has to be done. Doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't make it right. Right. Okay.
0: Yes. All right. Sometimes a doctor or nurse may say like, if you don't do this, or if you try to leave earlier against medical advice, your insurance is not going to cover your care. And that's just not true. So for anyone that's listening,
1: yeah, it's that is not, not, not true. Yeah, that's not true. Yeah. That's, Again, that's a, that's a form of coercion.
0: Exactly. Yep. 100. And if they
1: don't know it's not true. They shouldn't be saying it. Right. So the only reason they're saying it is to get people to do what they want them to do. They're using it as a as a club, as a as a hammer, as a curmudgeon. Yeah. I mean, that's not the right word. But they're using it to They're using it to frighten you. The same thing with child protective services. Mm-hmm.
3: Right the little spot where you could write something and you've been informed i said we have a healthy child and a healthy mother and we are going home we signed it and
2: we left the hospital that was it i personally don't use against medical advice paperwork i think that a well-counseled patient can sign out on their own if they know the risks of doing that that's a little different in a situation where it's a neonate so pediatrics may not be on board with that and they have to have you sign ama paperwork the update to
3: that story which is oh so relevant child protective services never came to my house and of course insurance covered the entire stay all of this should serve as a reminder that we are indeed living in an administrative state the cdc it's the fda it's all of these policy and all of these bureaucrats. And none of this is about the health of a child or the health of an adult anymore. It's
2: truth. I obviously don't agree with this. I think almost every single thing that was brought up in this video, aside from the very horrible communication that she obviously had from her healthcare team and the constant interruptions when she was trying to rest, everything else was specifically about the health of her or her baby. So I don't think that this conspiracy that everything we recommend is a bureaucrat leaning and trying to put us under a surveillance state. I think it's science and evidence. Regardless, I understand that she is frustrated. I'm glad she shared her story. I just wish she would have done it without spreading so much misinformation. Okay. So
0: something else that was brought up in the video that we don't really, we're not going to show right now is that they had her sign a, a document that's saying that this is illegal for her to not have the baby watched. And I believe she also wanted to refuse some other care for her baby, and she had to sign documents saying that this is not legal for her to, to not take this medication. I've heard this with, with the heel prick, that if the state requires you to do it, you have to do it. I don't know what your thoughts are on that one.
1: Do you have to sign anything? No, you don't have to sign anything. Sometimes it's the lesser, it's the, that's the path of least resistance is to sign stuff. Okay. Ultimately, when you sign stuff at a hospital under the threat of coercion, it will never stand up in court should it ever go that far, which it never will. But, you, you know, when you sign a consent form for surgery, you know, when you walk into a hospital and you sign these consent forms because while, while you're contracting every three minutes and they give you a clipboard and they say sign here, sign here, sign here, that's, that's the most ridiculous thing ever. That's, those consent forms are completely invalid. And any good lawyer would rip them apart because you can't give somebody informed consent or ask them to read something when they're in pain or they're in labor, right. you know, a guy with a guy, guy comes in and unconscious with a gunshot wound, to, you know, how's he going to sign consent forms? He, he, it's not, it's not going to happen. So the last point that she made, I, I respectfully have to disagree with her. She thinks that what the hospital does is for the, be- the be- benefit of the patient. And I've already mentioned that earlier, that sometimes like a broken clock it is correct and it does help for the better of the patient, but ultimately the policies that the hospital puts into place are designed to protect the hospital, to make the hospital profit and maybe to cover a majority of people who fall into that category. But then again, they think that every single woman who comes in needs to have these things done as opposed to individualizing their care. They have given up all these, these highly trained nurses go to nursing school. They, they go to nursing school probably for not for a reason to come out and to be to filling in blanks on a computer program or to be not being able to talk to patients. I mean, it used to be when you saw TV shows from the sixties and seventies and eighties, the nurses, you know, they would sit on the end of the bed and they would talk to the patient They not have time to do this now because of staffing issues. And because of supposedly electronic medical records, making things easier but I will tell you, and anybody who does, elect- they'll know this, that it, it's only made things more difficult. It only interferes more with the ability of eye contact with the patient or spending time with the patient because you have to fill out all this electronic data. This electronic data doesn't necessarily help the patient. It might in some cases because you can electronically transmit it to Cleveland or some other place where the patient might be at that time. But But most of it is for bookkeeping, medical legal keeping and for billing and it really doesn't, it, it, it doesn't improve care to the, to the degree that it disrupts care, in my opinion, that it takes away the nurses time. You know, I tell this story, I've told this story many times when I was, when I used to be in the hospital, I was doing a C-section one time and we had some students that were standing at the end of the bed at the woman's feet while watching the surgery and the circulating nurse had her back to me, she was typing, catching up on her charting, and she's typing into the computer. And I would I, you know, and I I don't remember her name, I'll just say it's Julie. So I took a look at the student and I go, Julie, Julie, no response. She's busy typing. And I'm the surgeon. Okay. Julie says, just a minute, Dr. Fishburne. I said, Julie, I need you now. Just a minute, Dr. Fishbine, I'll be right there. And then one of the students goes, boom, hits the floor. Okay. Because I could see that the student was turning pale. hmm and that they she was going to faint Mm -hmm. and she was so busy charting that my my medical student fell down and hit the floor (laughs) she was fine all right but (laughs) it just it it just highlights the example of the fact that that it it created it creates more work because this nurse cannot move on to her next next task until her charting is done right the point i'm making is that when dr jones says that the hospital has your best interest at heart you know that's not true and maybe the people that work there would like to have your best interest at heart, but sometimes they can't. And, you right. go, and when you're going into a hospital, one of the things you should always know is you need to bring a family member with you. COVID restrictions are no COVID restrictions, right? You need to bring a family member with it. You need to make a stink to do it because your family member will care about you. In the middle of the night, if you're trying to ring for a nurse and they're short staffed because you're bleeding or you're in pain and it takes 20 minutes for the nurse to get there, That may be the difference between life. Well, I don't want to say life and death, but between a good outcome and a not so good outcome. And again, if you need trained eyes to watch your baby for 48 hours, and those trained eyes are spending all their time looking at a computer screen out at the nursing nursing station, what what difference does it make? Right. I'll just leave it at that.
0: I wish I had an applause icon. (laughs) Because yes, that one right there, that's so important. And I know when I was doing a little bit more research about GBS and all, and all the all those things i one of the moms was just talking about how they wanted they took her baby for observation and the baby was in the room all by herself for three hours and no one was there no one was there and i just that that yeah it's so crazy it's so crazy to me i just that it was that was just so wild and we could really go into you know how that is so detrimental to the baby and
1: such a huge huge part of 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 recovery from the processes of growing a baby and delivering a baby Mm -hmm. is being nurtured being supported getting rest and i think candace Mm -hmm. owens purpose for this video was to point out that Mm -hmm. the system is mechanical it's lost its way yes it is not nurturing and it's not a great place for well people to be, let alone sick people to be. Mm-hmm. And it needs to, it needs to change. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, in and, you know, she Dr. Jones talks about universal health care. Universal healthcare is one of those other things that's a stage one thinking thing. It sounds good, okay, but everywhere it's tried, almost everywhere it's tried, it doesn't necessarily do good mm-hmm. because it leads to more indifference in the people working in the system, it leads to rationing of care if you look at canada or if you look at england and stuff like that if you're 65 and you have spinal stenosis you're going to get some pain medicine and if you're 65 in the united states and you have spinal stenosis you might get back surgery and be able to recover your life again Mm -hmm. but there are certain things you're not going to be able to do there and so yes everyone has access but access to what
0: right yeah and i also too i I don't really know much about the difference of the health this different systems and universal health care and things like that. But I have heard that even in those kind of systems that if you do have some kind of injury, it's, it's, mo- I mean, it takes like two months to see a pulmonologist for my daughter. And I hear that those lists are like six months to a year to see those kind of specialists. So then are we, are, are the patients, they're waiting a long time to get good, good or decent care. And and in the meantime, it gets worse. So that, that sounds
1: like it won't be the solution yeah 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 so i mean i I think this was this was a great go over Uh, again what would be really lovely in our world is to get people with differing views in the same format but you don't see that anymore wouldn't it have been nice during covid Mm -hmm. to get the guys that wrote the great barrington declaration like jay Bhattacharya and bunch of the other guys or robert mccullough or robert malone on the same stage with Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci, yes. With a moderator asking them questions, so the American public could have seen mm-hmm. the different arguments, as opposed to the, "were the science? These are conspiracy theorists." By the way, every conspiracy theorist generally turns out to be true. Yes. Lately, I mean, even now, the Kennedy assassination—that's a new thing too. But, 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 it, but, we don't we don't see that. Having you know, there are some critics of home birthing. There's two guys like Chervenhack and Grunbaum. From formerly of Cornell or wherever they're from now, they constantly badmouth midwives. They badmouth home birth. They badmouth me. Obama has, and you know I would love. I've offered many times to any people who can arrange it to get on the stage with them and have a and have a two-hour conversation in front right. of a large live studio live audience, mm-hmm. where we can actually hammer these things out. And I bet there's places where we could agree more than we disagree. Right. But but some people are so ideological. I feel lucky because I've lived in both worlds and I, and I, I've seen both worlds. Most people who comment on the kind of things that midwives are, the midwifery model or what we do or home birthing, they, they've never been to a home birth. They don't really know what a midwife brings to a home birth. Mm-hmm. They just occasionally see a bad outcome from a home birth and that's their, you know, that's their frame of reference. It's not a great yeah. way to judge things. Yeah. It's not, it's not like, like saying that, you know, I saw a baby die, right? Yeah, well, that's life. We all see babies die right. and hopefully not very often in our practices over our career, but if you practice long enough, everyone's going to see a baby die. And sometimes you're going to see a mother die mm-hmm. and it's, it's horrendous. And how do you get back up and go on dust yourself off and get back on your feet it's really, It really, says a lot about, you know, those strong workers in our profession who I don't necessarily agree with most of them, mm-hmm. but I admire them for making it through medical school and residency because it's a trial by fire. Right. And especially working now in, an, in, you know, job satisfaction in medicine is at the lowest it's probably ever been, or maybe it was a little lower before. Cause now people going into medicine don't have the same desires. I think that people like I did, people going to medicine now know they're going in, they're coming out, they're going to get a job. They're going to work a shift. So it's a different mentality than those of us that were OCD that wanted to run our own captain be captains of our own ship and make decisions and run our own business right people like those people don't go into medicine anymore people like me Mm -hmm. they would choose they would choose tech or they would choose business or they would choose something where they still have a chance to be their own boss
0: right yeah wow that's so powerful and i i I would say that though some of the new younger medical kids are actually kind of waking up i most of the medical students i'm i'm kind of interacting now they're they're actually uh, i'm pretty shocked at how medical school is so different than actual real policy and how unethical it can be at at times i actually talked with a nurse and she just she's in her first year of nursing at a hospital and she's like i just don't understand like i learned that this wasn't ethical in medical school but like they still do it
1: yeah yeah. well (laughs) eventually eventually you have to make a choice you get beaten down by the system i love the fact that people go in eager, open-eyed, wide-eyed, bright-eyed, and bushy-tailed, and, and some of them come out unscathed, but most of them come out indoctrinated yeah. into the medical model because to stick your head up and question why all the time, gets you in trouble,
0: Yes.
1: and uh, although, you know, you get into medical school, you're not going to fail out of medical school, it's, you know, once you get in, you're in. Mm-hmm. but, you know, it, it, it's, it's just easier to get along when you go along with whatever you're attending or whatever the policy is in your hospital, right. and not, don't ask too many questions. Yeah, yeah, because then you end up li- li- living a life where you're, you know, you, it's constantly agitated and and that's not necessarily good for your soul.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to thank you for bringing me on. I want to thank you for, I want to thank Candace Owens for mm-hmm. pointing out to, and taking on this subject because she, what she was saying is stuff that a lot of us have been repeating for a really long time. Right. She's She's got such a, a, a huge following. Mm-hmm. That it was great that it even inspired Dr. Jones. Right. to Take a look at it and, and critique her. And that's fair. And then, and, and and then, if Dr. Jones wants to, then watch this podcast, and then critique me, and <laughs> <then> I can <laughs> critique her, and then I can <laughs> receive and receive me, or yeah. we can we can just agree to disagree, or we could sometime in the future have a seminar where we're both at the same place. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's just putting information out there because yeah. we, in, in my model, believe in informed decision making, and in order to make an informed decision, you have to have information. Yeah. And it's hard to know, it's hard to trust any resources of information. I wouldn't ask people to trust everything that comes out of their mind. I want people out of my mouth. I want people to take the information and then go do some digging. Yeah. It's hard though because a lot of digging is censored, a lot of, of mm-hmm. stuff is is deleted off of or, or buried in the search engines mm-hmm. of, of the, the the tyrannical tech companies. And again, right. I am going off travel. I'm just I'm grateful to Grandison, as as I'm grateful to Dr. Jones, I'm grateful to you. Yeah. Angela,
0: thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for coming on my podcast again and just having this conversation and just, you know, having that healthy conversation and having healthy disagreements and agreements on this topic and on patient care as well. So thank you so much. Also, guys. He has a awesome podcast episode on GBS that he did on the Birthing Instincts podcast. And I will leave that in the show notes. I'll also link evidence-based birth articles. She's got a lot of great research articles. So if you guys really also wanna see some of the research on the GBS information, you guys can do that. And yeah, so thank you again, Dr. Sue, and it's been nice talking to you. Thanks, Angel. I'm Angel passionate birth worker and podcast host of the birth rebel podcast i'm bringing you a blend of heart soul and a bit of controversy join me on my podcast where i dive fearlessly into thought provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy birth breastfeeding and postpartum i'm unmasking the truths i'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it.